0: So here's the thing about serious and life-threatening illnesses. Most of us faced with this situation would say, indeed we do say, we want the care that's appropriate and that limits suffering and pain. We want caregivers to talk honestly with us and our family members about the options so we can weigh the benefits and risks of treatments against our deepest values and our desires for the best quality of life under the circumstances. We want the space to try things, perhaps, to see how it goes, and then maybe to change our minds. And yet, and yet, nothing about this is easy, whether patient or provider. And it's all the more difficult if the healthcare team we're dealing with or the facility we've landed in doesn't have systems in place to match the needs and the fluid nature of illness. That's why we're talking about palliative care on this edition of WIHI, to see what's possible, what's being tried in many locations, what the research suggests about the benefits of palliative care, and how you can move the dial in your own organization. Welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered biweekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's director of communications. I'm really heartened by the response to today's program. Over a thousand of you enrolled. Uh, several hundred of you are now uh, getting on board. Welcome. I think it signals a strong desire in the healthcare community to offer dignified and realistic options to patients and families facing serious illness, with the help of expertise. The sort of expertise we've assembled for this W I H I today. Let me briefly introduce our guests. There are further details about each of them on the WIHI web pages, and I do encourage you to check that out. Dr. Jennifer Temel is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Clinical Director of Thoracic Oncology at Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. She's the author of an important article we'll be discussing today. Welcome, Jennifer.
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Terrific. Dr. Daniel Ray is joining us from Allentown, Pennsylvania, where he's the medical director of the Medical Critical Care Program and director of the Palliative Medicine Fellowship Program at Lehigh Valley Health Network. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Glad
2: to be a part of this. Terrific.
0: And Dr. Alan Ramsey brings his experience and expertise from the Fletcher Allen Healthcare Palliative Care Service in Burlington, Vermont. Dr. Ramsey is that program's medical director and he also heads up the Fletcher Allen Rural Palliative Care Network. Welcome, Alan. Thank you for having me. Terrific. I'm glad you're here. Are you on a speakerphone there? Yes, I am. Okay. If we can coax you onto uh, the actual handset, that might bring you in a little bit closer. If not, don't worry about it. We'll just adjust the levels, but we're glad you're here, too will speak clearly. Okay, I'm sure you will. So if you're just getting on board, this is WIHI. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan. We've got a great panel here, and we're talking about palliative care. So sometimes on the program, I take just a few minutes uh, just to get a quick sense of the room, as we sometimes call it, by doing a quick poll. The only way we can do this is with a hand raise with our chat function. And uh, for those of you who've only joined by phone and are not on the computer, I'll try and give you the visuals here. We have a hand raise that can mean, and and if you raise your hand, it means yes. Uh, And uh, if you don't raise your hand, it means uh, either uh, you're agnostic or you're saying no. (laughs) So here's my first question uh, that I want to ask all of you. And after we do this quick poll, we'll close down chat uh, and then reopen for the Q&A later on in the program. So my first question, how many who've joined us today are in organizations with active palliative care programs? Raise your hand if you're a yes. So let's see. So I what I do here is I watch the numbers and our guests can see as well. So uh, so far we've got uh, out of the 563 connections or so, 174, 175 have come up with an affirmative yes. Okay, so that's not bad. That's a pretty strong percentage. Thank you very much. Second question. How many of you would say that the purpose of palliative care is widely understood in your organization? So maybe you've got your hand up and you can keep it up, or let's see. See if we're going to hit those. (laughs) It may be 175 again. All right. And uh, some people are chatting in already, resounding. There's a a bunch of no's here, too. So no's, it's true. If you don't raise your hand, you don't have (laughs) a way to say no. But we see your no's as well. Somebody is capitalizing no, and we all know what that means in in email at last. (laughs) All right, so we've got about 130 of you. All right, so we've got active, maybe more with active palliative care programs and less actually with uh, uh, the number drops, actually, in terms of uh, whether the purpose is widely understood. Final question. How many of you feel there's resistance in your organization because of misconceptions or other barriers? So it's all kind of related, but we're just trying to see sort of where we're at with this. All right, because we oh, we're only we almost at 600 joining today. All right, we're a little... Mixes of yeses and noes. Yes, definitely. No. All right. So we're leveling off at about 150. So there's plenty of opportunity for learning, uh, though we have a kind of core solid group to work uh, from and a knowledge base to work from today, so that's good as well. All right. Thank you very much. I hope that uh, keeps everybody awake. Uh, I'll do another pop quiz perhaps if uh, things get quiet, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. Important issue. All right. So, Matt, we'll close the chat now. And people hold on to your hats and keep your uh, uh, keystrokes poised uh, for the Q&A portion uh, at about the bottom of the hour. So here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to start off with Dr. Temel, Jennifer Temel, and uh, I'm going to do just a quick round robin. What is your uh, preferred definition of palliative care?
1: Uh, My preferred definition is that palliative care is a medical subspecialty that focuses on quality of life for patients with life-threatening illnesses.
0: How does it differ from end-of-life care?
1: I think palliative care providers can play an important part in helping people make decisions about end-of-life care, but by no means are palliative care and hospice synonymous, and so part of palliative care is end-of-life care planning, but it's a component, among many other things, that palliative care can bring to the table.
0: Okay. Thank you.
1: Daniel, Dan
0: Reig, uh, what what's your preferred definition of palliative care?
2: Uh, My preferred definition is uh, palliative care is a process of care for patients with advanced complex illness, um, helping them to navigate the complex medical system while maintaining uh, dignity and comfort.
0: Okay. And how would you distinguish it from end-of-life care?
2: I think end-of-life care is the kind of the end part of an advanced complex illness. And uh, it's distinctly different in the sense that it's broader than just focusing on end-of-life care.
0: Okay, thanks. All right, uh, Alan Ramsey, uh, your thoughts. Uh, What's your preferred way of describing palliative care?
3: We at Fletcher Allen think of palliative care as multidisciplinary. It always has to be both patient and family-centered. And uh, our goal is to optimize the quality of life. We try to anticipate and prevent and treat suffering. It um, it's different. You're going to ask me about end of life care. I'll yeah. say it's different from hospice and end of life care because we have no prognosis associated with our eligibility for palliative care, and um, our process of care really. Goes on throughout the whole continuum of an illness. I mean, most of the patients we see are have a life-limiting condition, but uh, our focus is still on improving their physical, emotional, social, and spiritual lives. That's the
0: difference. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. So, quick. Kind of snapshots here uh, get you to know our guests here and um, some interesting kind of nuanced uh, distinctions, although clearly a lot of overlap as well. I think these all sort of fill in for for all your definitions, each of your comments. All right, Jennifer Temmel, let me start with you. Um, you and your colleagues started investigating the potential benefits of palliative care for patients with newly diagnosed metastatic lung cancer in the ambulatory setting in June 2006. Uh, which is a while ago, uh, about five years ago. I'd like to ask you what prompted the interest, and uh, tell us what you found.
1: Uh, My interest in palliative and supportive care in cancer uh, really started when I became an oncologist. I think it's really hard to not be struck by the amount of suffering both physical and emotional suffering that goes on for both patients and families facing serious illnesses, you know, for me specifically lung cancer, so I've always been interested in trying to find better ways to provide care for patients and their families. Uh, Basically, the the basis of our study was that traditionally palliative care is asked to see patients very close to the end of their life and often in the hospital setting. And so the question that we asked is, uh, would it be beneficial for patients to have earlier palliative care closer to the time of diagnosis and in the ambulatory care setting, which is um, a preferred setting for cancer patients to not be in the hospital, and see if it would improve aspects of their care? And what we found is that patients with advanced lung cancer receiving palliative care, in addition to their oncology care, had improved quality of life, uh, lower rates of depression, and potentially a survival advantage.
0: So I want to know whether those results surprised you. Or, and uh, just is that, that, was that your hypothesis?
1: Uh, our hypothesis was that it would improve quality of life. Um, so I was I was surprised in a, in a happy way that we had the improvements in quality of life. I was a little bit surprised by the impact of early palliative care on depression. Um, the rates of depression between the two groups were, were significantly different, and I was surprised by that. And I think a, a lot of people were surprised by the survival difference. Um, I think going into this study, there would have been people that were concerned that early palliative care would actually decrease survival because maybe patients would be less willing to get aggressive chemotherapy or, or um, less likely to... Uh, um, just go on to hospice therapy, et cetera. So we were incredibly uh, happy that we didn't see a survival de- detriment with the early palliative care.
0: What would you say is the most meaningful takeaway uh, from, from your research, uh, and where do you think it kind of makes a contribution um, to at least the, the, the sort of the thinking uh, that has to kind of and the research that has to underline a lot of the change?
1: I think the most important take home point is that it's not an either or. That state of the art oncology and comprehensive palliative care can go hand in hand. Um, that they're not mutually exclusive. And not only is it feasible to provide both at the same time, but it's also advantageous to patients.
0: Okay, thank you very much. All right, Jennifer Temel. Um, We have, when we promoted the call, we did offer you a link to the text of this article that was in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, from last August. Whoops, I was just grabbing something here to... uh, Early palliative care for patients with metastatic non small cell lung cancer. It was from August 19, 2010, and we'll get that link uh, up there again. And just to remind all of you as well that that will be in the resource document that we uh, compile for every WIHI. So, Dr. Ramsey, let me turn uh, to you next from Fletcher Allen. Uh, As we were planning this conversation, uh, you told all of us that uh, while Dr. Tamil, Jennifer Tamil, wasn't quite sure sort of exactly the impact this article uh, had on the research community. She had a good sense of how the media were quite interested, but you said her study uh, kind of uh, sailed into your work uh, in a very important and powerful way. Can, can you talk about that?
3: Uh, yes, uh, I'm, as you know from my biography. I'm not an oncologist. I've been a family physician in Vermont for 30 years. I've transitioned into uh, my career in palliative medicine over the last five years. So, you know, I've been, over my 30 years of family medicine, I've seen some of the amazing advances in cancer care, which even include non-small cell lung cancer, where there is the ability to Palliate and improve the quality of care with standard oncology care. Now, the most important thing that evolved from this study, from Dr. Tamel's study for me, was number, it confirmed three things. Number one, palliative care is not end-of-life care. That is the message. We know from a recent national journal poll that only 24% of national respondents actually knew what palliative care is. Most of them, when I walk into a room and say I'm the director of the palliative care service, I get that sudden stiffening and that sudden look of, uh-oh, he's from hospice. So, but this study confirms palliative care is not end-of-life care, it is integrative care. The second thing that we learned, because we presented her Dr. Tamel's study at our oncology journal club literally within 10 days of its publication with all of the oncologists, and what the second point that I was able and we were able to make was that oncologists cannot be expected to be experts in palliative care. Palliative care is has a unique knowledge base it is a relatively new specialty but and a new field of medicine but it is different so when the oncologist is focusing on disease modifying therapies and the palliative care consultant is focusing on quality of life the outcomes improve And then the third thing is that it reconfirmed our need to have uh, an outpatient palliative care presence in our Vermont Cancer Center, which is now evolving and will happen within the next uh, two to three months. So three really important outcomes. Palliative care is not end-of-life care. Palliative care and oncology care are, are not the same. They are two separate specialties, and we need to get involved earlier in the course of a life-limiting disease like lung cancer.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, you've just been listening to Dr. Alan Ramsey from Fletcher Allen Healthcare, in, uh, based in Burlington, Vermont. This is WIHI, and I'm Madge Kaplan. Before Dr. Ramsey, you heard from Dr. Jennifer Temmel. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that uh, Dr. Uh, Ray and um, I mean, Dr. Ramsey will get back to you, also find out a little bit more about what is going on in the ambulatory care setting as things are ramping up. But I think this issue of the skills needed and who needs to learn them uh, across this kind of continuum of what's possible with palliative care will be very, very interesting, and um, I do hope we can explore that further. Dr. Daniel Ray, uh, for the purposes, I think, of our program to Today, you're kind of representing the inpatient world, maybe most of all, where palliative care fits in, and not just any part of the hospital, but the intensive care unit. Some might say uh, that uh, the ICU is often where one sees uh, paths taken and paths not taken, perhaps, in terms of why people have landed there. So I wonder if you could give us a bit of a picture of what's been going on at Lehigh and where you see, or what is it about that environment, that uh, Uh, present such an opportunity uh, for both integration
2: of palliative care and some change. Um, Yeah, thank you. Um I think you um, summarized it very well uh, in terms of the patient population that we're seeing in the ICU. Um, Granted, a lot of the patients who come in um, benefit greatly from the intensive care unit and survive and go on to live um, uh, wonderful, productive lives. However, there is a subset of patients that do come to the ICU that um, despite our greatest efforts, uh, become chronically, critically ill um, because of decisions that are made, um, um, and not necessarily decisions that are based on the values of the patients or the family because we just fail to ask about them. Um, so several years ago, uh, when we started looking at a, a, an idea of integrating palliative medicine principles into the ICU, the thought was that there's probably some basic skill sets that clinicians should have uh, in the ICU um, it, it, that represents some of the basic uh, principles of palliative medicine or palliative care. Uh, we subsequently, particularly at the nursing level, created an annual competency um, and then held them accountable for that competency on, a, on an annual basis in terms of their uh, recertification in the ICU. Physicians, on the other hand, are very challenging uh, to kind of herd uh, and trying to organize. Um, but at, at that time, we had a cadre of critical care physicians who are very committed to this kind of integrating palliative medicine and took it upon themselves uh, to really um, take this forward. The challenge we found is that um, integrating palliative medicine in the ICU is like a marriage. Uh, it takes effort to maintain, um, and um, that effort can, you know, depending on what's going on and how the turnover of the nursing staff, the addition of new faculty to the ICU uh, can make that um, um, very um, challenging. Um, what we found initially after the uh, educational intervention is that um, a lot of the a lot of the need that was present um, uh, could a bit were were being handled by the ICU providers. Um, However, there was, again, a subgroup of patients that the cases, the the complexity um, exceeded the skill set of the ICU team and subsequently um, having palliative medicine consultation services available. Uh, Incidentally, when we first started the educational program, we did not have a hospital-wide palliative care program. Our program actually grew out of the ICU. Um, once, uh, once we were able to have to start a palliative care inpatient consultation service, some of these very high challenging cases were uh, transitioned to um, consultation. Um, and initially, what we were finding is that these patients were. Um, already kind of towards the end of their ICU stay where the tracheostomy and PEG tubes have been placed, they were clearly now chronically critically ill, and it was around placement and how do we um, assist with the placement. Um, What we're finding now is that the consults are coming earlier. Um, they're coming before patients are trach and PEG uh, to help deal with um, uh, appropriate goal setting um, with a challenging family. Um, and this could be someone who on day one is anticipating to be a complex patient or is already a complex patient and getting involved much, much earlier um, in, in that standpoint. The uh, other benefit that the palliative care consultation has provided for our ICU is that it provides continuity of patient care across the venues. So as a patient graduates out of the ICU to a low-level monitor, step-down, or even to med surge, the palliative medicine team follows that patient. And, you know, palliative care is really about building relationships. Uh, with the families, with the patients, um, and uh, not only to kind of take care of the symptoms that are going on, but also to really look at the uh, suffering that the family and the patient uh, may be going through. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, I appreciate that picture. And I, I always uh, try to acknowledge uh, to our guests uh, as well as participants on WIHI, we are doing kind of a flyover of, a, of some fairly complex uh, systems in organizations, and uh, hopefully we can dig into some of the details. But this also gives you some idea about what's going on. Thanks, uh, Dr. Ray, Daniel Ray. Uh, Dr. Temel, I want to come back to you and uh, ask you a question. Um, what is the real difference, or what? How should we be wrapping our minds around uh, the focus on ambulatory care uh, versus the hospital? I know at the end you were at the beginning you were saying it's not an either-or in terms of treatment and/or palliative care, and I'm I'm trying to understand sort of how we should think about the dynamic of ambulatory care possibilities and inpatient.
1: I mean, I think in general, patients with um, incurable solid tumors. Um, My bias is to actually keep them out of the hospital, and many interventions focused on sort of palliative care or discussions about resuscitation preferences occur when patients are in the hospital, and in my mind, sort of the cat is out of the bag. Now, certainly if patients with advanced cancers, whether they're getting treatment or in hospice, have issues or symptoms that need to be managed in the hospital, then of course we want patients to come into the hospital. But I do think a lot of patients with metastatic cancers end up in the hospital when those admissions, for example, could be prevented by more aggressive palliative care or potentially by hospice care. So my bias is to do interventions in the ambulatory care setting to manage symptoms better, to improve sort of illness and prognostic understanding so patients make better decisions about their care and then potentially can avoid hospitalizations later down. Um, in our early palliative care study, uh, there were less hospital admissions for patients getting early palliative care. It didn't quite meet the significance, but, again, I think by having better symptoms, by making better decisions about care, patients were less likely to end up in the hospital.
0: Okay, thanks. Dr. Ramsey, do you share that view? Is that where you would be putting uh, as much energy as possible to see if we can kind of prevent those hospitalizations?
3: Well we are all talking about health care reform because we know the current uh, financing system for health care in this country is not sustainable. So none of us want a change that doesn't represent either maintaining or improving the quality of the care we provide, especially to the most vulnerable part of our population, which are those that are in the last phase of their life. So the earlier that we can palliative care can be involved, improving the quality of a person's life and prolonging their life, the better. And the earlier, typically as Dr. Tamal says, is going to be in the ambulatory care setting for most people with these with solid tumor cancers, who all of whom develop symptoms. Uh, at some point in the course of their illness. So the idea for palliative care, and though we are constantly talking about differentiating palliative care from hospice, is that pa- palliative care can ease the transition from someone earlier in the course of their disease to hospice care when the prognosis is has been determined. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we know, of, of what we know about hospice, is that it significantly reduces the expenditures in the last year of life. Mm -hmm. We know that an improved hospice and palliative care have some of the highest satisfaction scores of any other place of care. The last study, which was in JAMA several years ago, 71% rated their hospice care as excellent, as opposed to 47% that spent the last months of their life in and out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't surprised when Dr. Tamel's study said that uh, integrating palliative care and routine oncology care was, would prolong the life of people with late-stage lung cancer. I wasn't surprised at all because we have studies to show the same thing for, hot, for congestive heart failure, for pancreatic cancer, and there's really no difference with colon, breast, or prostate cancer. In other words, those people with congestive heart failure who elect to have Hospice care plus disease-modifying therapy, optimal care of their heart failure, live longer. Those who we now know, those who have lung, who have lung cancer, live longer. So when you're focusing on, on the preciousness of every day of your life and improving the quality of every day,
0: you live longer. Thank you. Thanks very much. All right. I'm going to, uh, Doctor. You were just listening to Doctor. Alan Ramsey from Fletcher Allen. This is W I H I. We're going to turn to questions uh, and comments in just a second, but I want to get in one more question. Bring you back in here, Doctor. Daniel Ray. Uh, Dan, I, I, and this is, I think, it goes. Uh, really, it's a question for everybody, and perhaps people can comment into about uh, comment in about this as well in the chat. How do you educate staff? At the very beginning, I asked people whether there was uh, a good understanding of what palliative care was. And it sounds like even people who would say they have programs in their organizations, uh, not as many said everybody understands exactly what the whole purpose is. Any thoughts at all about education or even sort of where, where that begins?
2: Um, yeah, I, I can comment on that in terms of what we're doing here at, at Lehigh Valley Health Network. Um, there's the kind of the focused uh, unit training that can be performed um, with nursing staff in the ICU or the open heart unit or the oncology wards, um, kind of talking about the basics of palliative medicine, what are the tenants, um, uh, what are the uh, kind of interventions that are available. But I think to to really get a culture change, you um, need to think very much broader at the network level, uh, we created a program called PALMS, which is the Palliative Medicine uh, Scholars Program, um, and this is a, uh, a program that is invited all specialties within the network um, on uh, twice a month over lunch. Um, that we it's learner centered in in a sense of the curriculum is set up by the. Uh, by the attendees, and often the presentations are by the attendees. And the presentations, instead of being the standard lecture discussions, are are much more around adult learning theories. Um, and we really try to spice it up in terms of role playing and audience participation. Um, and we, we've been we've been started this palms program about uh, three years ago. Um, we have over 300 uh, clinicians involved. Many, believe it or not, are physicians. Um, And it's been a very um, productive way. Um, We're starting to see the fruits of that change um, within our network um, as we go to the floors. And and these employees, these clinicians, are in different areas of the hospital promoting palliative medicine within their own specialty. It's also promoted the collaboration among the different uh, specialties in terms of physical therapy, occupational therapy. the, The physicians are much more in tune now to what really goes into a swallowing study. And what it means, um, and, and so from that, that kind of fertile uh, ground has really allowed us to to start to change the culture. I think the, also the culture from the physician level really comes down to simple consultation etiquette um, in terms of how we, as physicians and healthcare providers who are doing the consults, interact with our colleagues. Um, around servicing not just the patient's needs but also paying attention to what the physician and the healthcare care team need to help uh, care for a particular patient. And I find that the more we um, help the clinicians understand um, what we're doing and understanding the perception of the suffering that the patient may be going through um, more and more, uh, um, they're, they're starting to see the light and um, the, the uh, benefits are starting to come forward.
0: Thanks so much. I wanted to ask you, and not to put you on the spot, is the PALMS program and curriculum, is that is, is something that's only internal and proprietary to Lehigh? Is that anything that uh, there's any aspect of that that might be shareable at all?
2: At this point, it's it's only here locally. Okay. Uh, we do have a white paper that um, w- would be available for description a little bit more of the program that I'd be happy to share with you. Okay, great.
0: So what we'll do is if I can't uh, get that link up here right now, um, I'll get that from uh, Daniel Ray, and you folks can uh, email info at IHI.org if you're interested. And In between now and the end of the program, if we have a means, if there's, is that is that on a website?
2: Uh we, we can we can download it to a website. Okay,
0: all right. So we'll 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 take care of that. I promise I'll I'll make that available to everybody and we'll put it on the resource document. And if you're anxious for it, right away email info at IHI.org and we'll make sure to get that to you. Okay, so we're uh, this is WIHI, we're about at the half hour mark, uh two thirty-four, the computer says here. You've been listening to uh, Dr. Daniel Ray, Dr. Alan Ramsey, and Dr. Jennifer Temmel. We're talking about palliative care. We're sort of moving through a lot of big uh, areas and issues. I've got some questions in my back pocket, but I bet uh, many of you joining today have questions as well. So Matt here is going to remind you how to use chat, and we'll we'll take it from there. Matt.
2: Matt. Thanks much. Uh, The chat is now open for everybody to use. If you have a question, please just remember to use all participants when you're chatting so that we can all see it. Uh, So ask away.
0: All right. Very good. That was easy as pie. So, um, again, all participants and uh, chat some things in and and we'll get to it. While uh, folks are are kind of warming up and uh, letting us know what's on their minds, I do want to draw people's attention uh, to a very robust organization, the Center to Advance Palestinian. Relative care. Uh, WWC.D. I can't talk. WWW.CAPC.org is just a treasure trove of resources and all kinds of documents, and people are working very, very hard on advancing this. There's an enormous amount of material that's downloadable for free, and I encourage you to check that out. All right, so here comes some of our, um, oh, okay, easy one. Uh, Dan, uh, somebody wants to be reminded yeah. of wh- what "Palm" stands
2: for. <laughs> again. Yeah, it's actually PALMS with an S, and that's Palliative Medicine Program, So P, small A, small L, capital M, capital S. All right. Very, very good. Um, so Jennifer,
0: uh, someone named Jennifer McCauley, welcome, has a question here, which is interesting. She said, how long have each of you been running your programs, and at what point do you think you hit a turning point, meaning your colleagues and organizations started to better understand and use the service? So Dr. Uh, Jennifer Temmel, let me start with you on that one.
1: So, uh, Thank you. I'm actually an oncologist and not a palliative care provider, um, but I can answer the point about what the turning point is. I think um, no one will be surprised to hear that when you offer physicians or nurse practitioners a service uh, that makes their lives easier, they're happy to adopt it. So I think when we first started doing this research with palliative care now a decade ago, you know, uh, the physicians and nurse practitioners were very hesitant, they didn't want to give up control, they didn't want to share their relationships, they were all convinced they were doing a great job and didn't need any assistance. But once we got the palliative care team to help co-manage a couple of their patients, uh, they realized that the patients were uh, getting better care, better symptom management, their psychological symptoms were better attended to, and that made the oncology physicians and nurse practitioners' lives easily, more easy. And then you know, they kind of wanted palliative care to see more of their patients. So I think once palliative care can demonstrate a benefit, to the other providers and clinicians, then it helps increase their referral base and build the practice.
0: Okay, thanks. I'm going to uh, come back to the turning point issue with everybody, but since I've got you, uh, Jennifer, let me just ask a follow-up, a follow-on question. Uh, somebody was asking, uh, how are referrals made? Is it the oncologist that typically makes the referral, or is there some other dynamic that's going on uh, that uh, helps patients and families understand the option of palliative care?
1: So when we have uh, studies open, the referral to palliative care is automatic. So in the New England Journal of Medicine paper, patients randomized to early palliative care were automatically scheduled uh, with the palliative care team. Um, When we don't have an early palliative care study, it's basically uh, the patient or their family or the clinician can request a palliative care consult.
0: Okay. And are people made aware of that? Is that very upfront uh, kind of in, in the system?
1: It is. We are incredibly fortunate that our ambulatory palliative care clinic is embedded within the cancer center. So it actually sits right in the portion of the cancer center where the thoracic and head and neck oncology group is. So there are signs for it everywhere. There's brochures for it. So I do think it's made it a lot easier to get our cancer patients to the palliative care clinic. I think for other patients who might benefit from ambulatory palliative care, like patients with congestive heart failure or end-stage renal disease, They might not be very excited about coming into a cancer center, but certainly for our patients, it's been great that it's so physically integrated in the cancer center.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot. So does the turning point notion, uh, thanks, uh, Jennifer Temple, does the turning point notion make sense to you, uh, Dr. Ramsey, Fletcher Allen, would you say uh, you've reached that turning point or has there been a turning point in terms of uh, embracing uh, this kind of work in your organization?
3: I think there has been. I, um, I'll just say that uh, <clears throat> when we started our programs, and a lot, it sounds like a lot of our listeners have uh, have new, newer programs that they're they're building in, in their institutions. Uh, we are an academic medical center, and so we had basically three focal points. Uh, first, uh, for all of them depended on education, so we focused first on. Uh, medical students and residents, uh, expanding the palliative care curriculum and uh, having required communication skills workshops in the GME program, the residency programs, because they're really um, you know at the uh, at the forefront of a lot of the patient care. We then focused on our hospitalist groups who we have, uh, who now hospitalists are caring for most patients in general medical floors and then we focused on uh, the areas of the hospital most in need, and the first one was the medical intensive care unit. So we developed a criteria-based consultation in our medical intensive care unit, meaning uh, we were able to get all of our intensivists in the medical intensive care unit to um, to agree to a set of criteria, a set of disease uh, conditions that uh, would mean there would automatically be a palliative care consultant involved, and um, and after. You know, after uh, targeting those those three specific areas, uh, the growth was uh, was pretty exponential, um, and it all came down to teaching and helping people understand about uh, what palliative medicine can do for people in the hospital with a whole multitude of different uh, for a whole multitude of different reasons. Now, I'll just say that our surgical intensive care unit, which is an open unit, meaning any surgeon can admit to the SICU. And I see one question here about from a critical care nurse who asked the question about um, how you encourage surgeons to better utilize palliative care. What we did in the surgical intensive care unit to increase our referral base is basically make regular rounds and develop a set of criteria which were much more limited because many people in the surgical intensive care unit have uh, are post operative or have uh, acute trauma who we ex- fully expect them to have a meaningful recovery but now with the aging of the population that demographic is changing so we did develop a, a more limited set of criteria for surgical intensive care unit and haven't implemented that because we just don't have quite enough staff in our palliative care program yet to accommodate all those needs. But even doing that work increased the number of referrals in the uh, surgical intensive care unit because all of the division chiefs were willing to approve that cr- those set of criteria.
0: Mm, Very, very interesting. Okay, so thank you for also uh, sweeping in another question there. I appreciate it. Dan Ray, uh, would you say there's been a a kind of turning point in your organization? And maybe I'll sort of sneak in a few other questions here. Uh, Some are wondering about cultural, spiritual beliefs running into those uh, kinds of uh, speed bumps, and by that I don't mean anything uh, disparaging at all, but those can be um, challenging. Also, there's a, a comment in here that somebody is saying that uh, some physicians don't like the word palliative. Last year <laughs> when we talked about uh, end-of-life care, there was a whole discussion about, uh, among some anyway, about maybe we need to change uh, the language and not talk about end-of-life. So um, any any thoughts um, as you think about sort of turning points in your org- own organization, um, h- how these things have been addressed?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I, I think the turning points are different for different specialties of what we're finding out um, and, and they can be done even on an individual basis um, you know we had a big belief in from our ICU team up front um, they're big believers because our institution requires that any patient in the ICU—it's a requirement—they have a critical care consultation. Um, we were kind of coming in from that direction, uh, from the uh, the, uh, the critical care team, even on a general surgical patient, if they felt that palliative medicine was important, we'd we'd be integrating it. Um, the the idea of palliative medicine or palliative care—it's not something that people say, "I don't want palliative care." In a sense. Um, it's not like saying I don't want hospice. Uh, palliative care is almost a, a, a state of mind. It's it's a, a way we care for patients, and so the spiritual um, issues, the religious issues. Um, don't necessarily impede um, palliative medicine implementation. It just um has us explore more what the cultural religious diversity is and helping the team take care of the patient within that um, context um, uh, primarily. Um, You know, it's amazing how some physicians find the light. Um, I recently had a a CT surgeon um, pull me inside and said, did you read that New Yorker article? He said, I read that and that changes my practice. That's a Gawande's article, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So it's. um, I find it very much on an individual basis, Uh, as Dr. Temel said, you get one patient where you can kind of collaborate with the physician on and all of a sudden the physician recognizes the benefits and that you're not taking over their authority to make decisions, but you're helping them to care for a patient in a more um, holistic uh, holistic approach. Alright, thank you very
0: much and I'm pulling out uh, the uh, Tool Gawande article is called Letting Go. It was from August second, 2010. If you have a yeah. stack of New Yorkers at home or you can find it online, and we can also create a link. I don't know if it's freely available content, but it it may well be. So thank you for referring to that. Thanks for all your questions and comments. And feel free, uh, some of you, if you feel like it uh, in our limited amount of time, we can't get to everything, but you're welcome to respond to one another. Uh, Somebody is also asking. So I want to get to some of these issues about skills. Uh, Dr. Ramsey started off uh, in a strong way uh, saying that oncologists can't be expected to be experts in palliative care, and I think people are sort of trying to put some emphasis on the specialty uh, as well as the special skills needed and et cetera. On the other hand, there's an argument that can be made uh, that if this is going to work on a system-wide level, and if people are going to be able to be sort of recognizing uh, what's going on uh, across a continuum and with one individual who may be in multiple sites of care, um, how do we sort of uh, think about sort of the why uh, education that may be needed so that more uh, folks are uh, empowered. Somebody is asking about giving a presentation, for example, to uh, outpatient doctors, and uh, that's again asking in some ways how can uh, more physicians um, dealing with patients in a more primary care way also have this. So it's a big area, on <laughs> I'll throw it perhaps at Dr. Temel, Jennifer Temel first, I mean this whole issue about... You know, who needs to know what? It seems like maybe some baseline uh, knowledge and and sensitivity uh, training is needed for everyone.
1: So I think that's actually a really important next research step for me, and, and maybe even trying to look at it from some of the data that we recently published, is who does need a palliative care consult? Obviously, not every metastatic solid tumor patient in the entire country is going to have palliative care services available to them, and probably not every cancer patient needs it. So from a research perspective, I think those are important questions to answer. You know, I I do think that oncologists do have a a very good skill set when it comes to symptom management and providing support, um, and I think there is some variability there. But what I would say is, as cancer care and medical care is becoming more complex over time, it's just challenging to fit all the things you need to do into an oncology appointment. So it can be quite challenging to talk to patients about all the risks and side effects of drugs like erlotinib or crizotinib and all these new and exciting new treatments for lung cancer and also have the time to be able to focus on all of these other issues. So I think oncologists need to have some skills, of course, but there are going to be certain populations and maybe certain oncologists who will need assistance from patients, from people specially trained in palliative care. Okay. And any thoughts on that, uh, Dr. Ramsey? Uh,
3: yes, I um, I certainly agree with Dr. Timmel that um, you know that um, it's very difficult to to be experts in both these fields. What we know, and we know this from many studies. Is that uh, people want to understand what's going to happen to them in the future. Now, what they hear from their oncologist is what is the future of my disease modifying therapy? And as Jennifer, Dr. Tamel says, that's a very complicated discussion. Now, they also want to know, and most people, if you look at the studies, 80% want to know all possible information about their prognosis. Now, being able, having the time to discuss that prognosis in a hopeful way, which is focused on an individual person's goals and values is i believe a special skill of people trained in palliative care and i wouldn't ex- and it's not only time but it's communication style and it's what is the focus point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you're get you're continuing with your disease modifying therapies your chemotherapy your radiation you you want to you want these these your cancer to be palliated to give you the longest life possible, but what else is there in your future that's hopeful? What are your values and goals? Mm -hmm. That is a special skill, and it takes time.
0: Yep, great. Okay. I appreciate that. That's that's very, very helpful. Thank you very much. I want to also just quickly mention um, that one of the things I – I must have downloaded this, I think, from the Center to Advance Palliative Care website. It was in the Journal of Palliative Medicine um, 2011, and it was called Identifying Patients in Need of a Palliative Care Assessment in the Hospital Setting. It was written by Diane Meyer, a big leader in this field, and David Weissman, and uh, it's an interesting one. It does, to the point earlier, talking about checklists and uh, sort of ways, triggers, ways that people can begin to see uh, what patients might be, which patients may be presenting with things for which palliative care would be very, very helpful. Uh, I have a couple of interesting questions here. Uh, The business case, Woody English is asking about that. Anybody want to address the business case for a palliative care, excuse me, consultation service? I worry that for the most part the Unit cost of doing a consult is greater than the revenue that any third party will pay. Uh, Anyone want to talk at all about finances here, and and sort of anywhere that this uh, has been kind of dealt with in in a a good way or creative way?
3: Well, I will just say that again,
0: Dr. Ramsey. Yeah,
3: this is Alan Ramsey. We don't have a health, a sustainable healthcare system now from a financial viewpoint. Our insurers, most of our physicians, certainly most of our administrators are addicted to fee for service which depends on revenue generation, doing more to generate more revenue. That system is not sustainable. That psychological dependence has got to end. And we in palliative care and hospice providing improved quality at reduced costs, being family and patient-centered, and focusing on individual goals to drive a patient care plan, is in the best possible position to respond to how our healthcare system is gonna be reformed. Now, that's the philosophical point, and that's the truth. Mm-hmm. You can go to the CAPC website, and you can get in all kind of metrics about your the size of your hospital your mortality rate your length of stay in the critical care and general hospital general medical floors put that into formula and you can see how much you each palliative care consult in your hospital will save your hospital but your palliative care providers will not generate enough revenue to support their costs but they will save enormous amounts of money okay just like in medicare we know in medicare that uh, for um, the expenditures in the last year of life of, pay, of Medicare of patients utilizing the Medicare hospice benefit decrease by at least two thousand mm-hmm. dollars. I mean, we know these are facts. These metrics are everywhere. But as long as we are so focused on fee for service, it is very difficult. And I know our listeners out there are, are feeling the same way. For administrative people to understand total value. Yeah, I think accountable care organizations are going to change that. I think the Affordable mm-hmm. Care Act is going to change that. We in Vermont are, are moving ahead with reforming our whole health care system, and part of that is a palliative care bill
0: right that 's right. you were uh, uh, mentioning that, and hold that thought for one moment. maybe we 'll come back to that because I know that was something you wanted to mention on the program. Uh, thanks very much. I think I want to make sure uh, as I sort of look at the various questions here, uh, Dan Ray, because uh, there there are challenges here there 's no question. the finances is one piece, particularly if we mm-hmm. uh, try and layer all this in in the current system, but the current system is changing we 're just not quite sure yet. Where we're, where we're headed. Can you talk about uh, sort of small tests of change? I'm sort of stealing from another presentation you gave on another w, excuse me, IHI phone call where you talked about sort of if you need to sort of get something going or off the ground, let's say you're one of the participants today, which there's not much happening yet, where to start? Where might you begin to do some kind of small test of change or begin to see uh, sort of ha- how it works uh, with some folks who perhaps, are very eager to, to try something.
2: Uh, I, I think that's, uh, it's important to try to start small, um, as you are commenting. It, it's finding um, a, um, a venue within your organization where you do have believers and start collecting the data I think, um, as Dr. Ramsey said, the CAPC website has a fantastic model that can be used, um, and, and that's really how we started to make the argument at our institution. We, you know, From a billing standpoint, we, we will never cover the overhead of, of what it costs for our FTEs and, and time, but what we have been able to provide uh, our finance department as believers is that we were able to show on a, in a small group how we can decrease um, uh, the daily uh, rate of about between $300 and $600 a day after every palliative medicine consult. So if we consult on day five and the patient is discharged on day eight, we are now credited three days of saving $300 to the network. Okay. Um, that was a huge focus change for our institution, for our finance to, to understand that and to appreciate that. So taking one area, and, and investing some time and energy to prove that within your network, within your hospital, that this is something that in a, grand, a larger scale can go forward is the best way to do it.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I want to just, somebody asked me to just repeat this and we will try and also put in the link. This is called Identifying Patients in Need of a Palliative Care Assessment in the Hospital Setting. It's a consensus report from the Center to Advance Palliative Care. David Weissman and Diane Meyer are the authors. It was uh, published in the Journal of Palliative Medicine November 1st, 2011, and we'll try and get this link in there as well. And if we don't get it in time uh, when the hour is up, we'll definitely put it in the resource uh, document that gets posted to ihi.org. And I also want to just make a quick reference. Uh, Actually, next week on April 28th, IHI has a five part web based program. It's an expedition under our passport program integrating palliative care principles in the ICU. And it's to help hospitals implement palliative care principles to improve efficiency in their ICU, reducing length of stay, and improving coordination of care, uh, doing all the things that we're talking about uh, today. That begins on April 28, 2011, and there is more. uh, It's a web-based program, so you don't have to go anywhere, and um, the convenience of your computer, and uh, that information is on IHI.org. So let me just look quickly uh, just at a few of the remaining comments here. Um, I guess, uh, I, well, let's do this. I think we're, we're almost at the top of the hour. Why don't we just do some sort of parting words here? And um, Dr. Ramsey, allow, why don't, if you'd like, you could uh, make quick reference to what's going on in Vermont and how people can find out more about it in ter- on the policy front. And uh, and then Dr. Temel and uh, Jennifer Temel and Dan Ray, I'll leave it to you what kinds of parting words you'd like to, to uh, offer us. Uh, Dr. Ramsey, I'll start with you.
3: Yeah, this uh, last comment I'll make is that the other thing that I'm passionate about, and that's increasing access to hospice care services. As I mentioned, palliative care can be an entry point into hospice. But the number of people utilizing hospice is declining. The the length of stay in hospice programs is not sustainable for small hospice programs. And and so what we uh, have established, what we've tried to do in Vermont, is to introduce the palliative care bill. And what that does is recommend that health insurance plans, as well as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, provide enhanced access to hospice by expanding eligibility to people with a median life expectancy of one year rather than six months. Mm -hmm. Give the physicians a little bit of flexibility, particularly with benign conditions. The second thing uh, meat of the bill is that it recommends that our health insurers, as well as CMS, provide us a waiver so that people can continue all interventions that may palliate their symptoms and prolong their lives and still have access to hospice. In other words, it's not either or. You can continue with your palliative chemotherapy, you can continue with your radiation therapy, you can continue on dialysis. That increases access to people with a life-limiting prognosis of one year rather than six months to these other forms of therapy. There is no other way to increase access to hospice care other than changing the rules that are totally outdated.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. I'm glad, and I hope people uh, now have at least some information that if they want to follow up on that, uh, they can look up more information. And, again, and a sincere thank you to you, uh, Alan Ramsey, for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Temel, uh, some sort of parting thoughts. where You sort of have alluded to some of the new research frontiers in, in your work. Um, kind of, you know, so what's on your to do list, or any thoughts as you've listened to the conversation today?
1: Uh, Thanks, Madge. Uh, My to-do list is very big. Uh, The first thing that we're actually going to do is try to um, replicate and build on some of the findings. So we actually have a similar study opening at the Massachusetts General Hospital for patients with incurable lung uh, NGI cancers, and that's actually opening next week, and we'll start accruing. So hopefully we'll get some uh, exciting data from this new study.
0: All right, and then we'll have you back here, uh, I I hope. Thanks so much for participating. Thank you. Uh, Okay, and and Dan Ray, some sort of... uh, Uh, Final thoughts? Would you recommend uh, folks uh, start doing some work uh, right around the ICU? Is that sort of a rich environment where people might be kind of poised and open to uh, thinking about palliative care? Um, I
2: I would say, yes, it's a very rich environment, but I wouldn't say that everyone's poised to embrace palliative medicine in the ICU. Okay. That's probably (laughs) one of the biggest challenges in most institutions. What I do want to close with, though, is a very important distinction that I have made in, in the terms of what is the difference between palliative medicine and palliative care. Okay, good one. And I want to be very clear that the, if you look at the American Board of Medical Specialties, the Hospice and Palliative Medicine core competencies, and what it states is that a competent hospice and palliative medicine specialist is equipped to provide the medical aspects of palliative care, in conjunction with a palliative care team. So when we talk about physicians being trained, and I think this goes back to Dr. Temel's uh, study, a physician cannot be expected by themselves to provide palliative care. They can provide the medical aspects of palliative care. But a palliative care requires an interdisciplinary team involving a nurse, a spiritual care provider, and either a psychologist, psychologist, psychiatrist, or some type of of counselor. And it's that core team that is really what's going to make a difference and uh, and provide um, a broader range of skill sets to really care for a patient with advanced complex illness.
0: Okay, very, very important uh, distinction and explanation and never too late <laughs> uh, for one. So uh, thank you very much, Dr. Daniel Ray uh, from Lehigh Valley. We really, really appreciate your participation. All of our guests, uh, terrific uh, program. Uh, y- your wisdom has been really, Uh, You know, very valuable. I want to thank all our participants. Clearly people are very engaged and thinking about this issue. We'll come back to it again. uh, Again, check out IHI.org for this five-part webinar that's coming up um, on palliative care uh, referencing and and sort of surrounding the issues in the ICU. We hope you'll uh, take advantage of that. Next up on WIHI, May 5th, 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, same time as today, leading across the continuum. My guest is none other than and our president and CEO, Maureen Bisignano. And you can enroll for that program right now if you'd like. And you can check out our website uh, where you'll find an audio download of today's program by tomorrow morning. You'll also find it on iTunes. And uh, you can, uh, so just check out under the Archive tab, and there'll be a wonderful resource document that is there as well. We're trying to capture everything that's been referenced today. Uh, so anything that didn't get into the chat right now, we'll make sure it lands in the resource document. So never despair. If you're anxious and you're not sure, where do I find it? Where do I find it? Email us at info at IHI.org, and we won't let you down. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Oleson, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Vicki Win- <laughs> Minden. I know Vicki's last name. And we've got this wonderful music that opens and closes the program. Original Arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Saposoa on piano. I want to thank you all again for joining us today. Very, very important topic. It is near and dear to all our hearts, our humanity. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.